Welcome to Ventricles, a podcast of the science, religion, and culture program at Harvard Divinity School. My name is Shireen Hamza. This episode is part of a series about time, including timekeeping and time travel. I sit down with Projit Mukherjee, a professor of the history and sociology of science at the University of Pennsylvania, to speak more about time in the body through the pulse and how pulse-taking changed with the widespread use of mechanical clocks and wristwatches. In our last episode, we discussed the pulse as a diagnostic tool in both Greek and Chinese medicine, in which the practice goes back over 2,000 years. For most of this history, doctors had to learn to feel the qualitative descriptions of pulse, like when the pulse is feathery or gazelling, In this episode, we will focus on another ancient medical tradition, Ayurveda, which literally translates to the knowledge of life. Ayurveda originates in South Asia, but today Ayurveda is practiced all over the world. In Boston alone, where I'm recording this now, there are several places you can seek Ayurvedic treatments. Pulse diagnosis in Ayurveda, called Nadi Pariksha, has a long and interesting history but we will focus today on the modern period. How did Ayurvedic practitioners, or Vedyas, adapt to their practices over time? The clock and the watch have become the metaphors of choice through which we see the world in a mechanistic way. You might remember Projit from our first episode. People use these mechanistic metaphors all of the time. The healthy body is said to be working like a clock. And when you have that very object being haunted, run by all kinds of unreasonable, irrational forces, it kind of complicates our view of this mechanized metaphor for the nature, your body, whatever. He tells that haunted clock story in episode one, if you haven't heard it yet. I asked Projit what I thought would be a straightforward question. What is the pulse in Ayurveda? And how is it used? This is what he said. There's no single theory. There are many theories of uh, Ayurvedic uh, physiology, of how it works. It doesn't really give you a unified theory of the whole body. I think it tries to um, model functions in multiple ways, which are um, useful for physicians to intervene in the body but not necessarily to say this is how the body is so to give you one very concrete example uh, in the Charaka Samhita which is considered to be the canonical text in Ayurveda uh, there is a section which discusses the three doshas which people translate as humors I don't want to translate it as humor Uh, but these are the three principles that sustain the body that are at the heart of pathogenesis or you falling ill or staying healthy. Now, in that, obviously you would expect the textbook, uh, um, the main textbook to tell you what these three key things are in the body. But what you get in that chapter where they discuss the doshas is with the first dosha, vayu, or air, wind, breath, whatever you want to call it, what is given in that chapter is actually the description of an assembly of saints where a number of rishis are sitting down and they're debating on what uh, Vayu could be. And so one guy stands up and says, and this is of course all modeled on a uh, polite Sanskrit assembly of scholars. And so everybody stands up uh, one by one and says his piece. And 
sits down the next guy stands up and says what you say my lord is completely true but then and goes on and says something completely different you know almost a monty pythonesque cut but segued with this kind of deferential what you're saying is absolutely right so what you get by the, reading that chapter are three or four completely different definitions of vayu somebody says vayu is actually the god varun traveling within your body somebody else says no no it's just a mobidific entity uh, it has no sort of agential consciousness so you get like radically different definitions and these are never nobody feels the need to reconcile them so there was historically no one understanding of the pulse in ayurveda rather like this definition of vayu one of the three doshas in the body there were always many definitions and no one took precedence over the other actually i had i had uh, the, got a sense of this when i was interviewing a, a an old vaidya who had been very helpful uh, and gave me a lot of uh, uh, a lot of insights and in fact he was he had he was not only a vaidya he had also trained in indology in his youth at heidelberg and got a phd in sanskrit <laughs> so so and if you read charles lesley's book asian medicine um, there's a chapter on ayurveda in bengal by a uh, man called brahmananda gupta so this is brahmananda gupta what charles leslie doesn't adequately clarify is brahmananda gupta is also practicing vaidya who is the son of one of the most elite vaidya lineages of bengal and his grandfather had set up one of the first ayurvedic colleges etc but brahmananda gupta told me of how when he was a young boy and he was studying in college his father would occasionally tell him don't go to college today come out with me i have to go see a patient and he would take him and make him feel the pulse of that patient and his father wouldn't tell him anything he would just say remember the sensation and then he'd come back and point out a certain section in a text and say read this and he'd say whatever you sensed is different i don't know what you sensed my sensation and your sensation will be different but this sensation correlates to this particular type of uh, affliction and this particular type of treatment you have to memorize that sensation that you have had and which might be different from my sensation and connect it to this part of the text so it's this kind of way in which a plurality of uh, or multiple ways of um, thinking the body could be sustained within a single textual canon multiple ways of thinking the body within a single medical tradition Having explained this, Projit went on to explain some of the lesser known definitions of the Nadi Pariksha. Also, this is this is just one strand. There could be other strands as there were where you take for instance like I said somebody said Vayu is a god, somebody said Vayu is only a kind of breath that's circulating. If you were one of those people who emphasized the the godliness of vayu then you had a completely different direction to go in you would probably offer a lot of lot more ritual therapies you would address this as a, the travels of a god so if you ask people again pulse being the crucial diagnostic tool for uh, uh, for physicians if you ask physicians what do you actually feel in the pulse what is it that you're looking for because of course 
um, in the Western tradition, we know what they look for in the pulse. They're looking for when they're counting your heartbeats. They're counting whether your heart is working properly. And they have a that is the mechanistic image of the body. That there's a pump. The heart is a pump that's pumping blood, and you're seeing whether the pump is right or not. If the pump goes wrong, you clear out the pipes or you replace the pump. You so those are the kind of treatments the biomedical tradition uses. If you ask an Ayurvedic uh, doctor what they felt earlier on, I mean, these days they would also probably give you some kind of quasi-mechanistic uh, this thing because they're so influenced by biomedicine. But the older, traditionally trained Vaidyas would often tell you that that they hear the footfalls of the Atma or the soul. There's a slightly different version of this when they say they hear the footfalls of destiny, which is sometimes anthropomorphized as either Bidhata Purush or Bidhi, which is kind of, again, uh, an anthropomorphication of fate or destiny. But then there are also some people who will say that we, we try to understand the movements of the god Vayu. So those who consider Vayu to be a god take a very different approach. A lot of miscarriages or issues with uh, childbirth are often connected to Vayu because the passing of a certain kind of wind is or breath is responsible for expelling the fetus or the infant from the body. Those who believe that Vayu is a morbidific entity deal with it in a certain way by giving a host of uh, mineral or herbal medicines, whatever. Those who believe it's a god, however, have now or for a long time, they've started using mantras addressed to um, to Hanuman, the god. So the reason being, because if you read the mythologies, then Hanuman is supposed to be the son of Vayu. And so if you please Hanuman, Vayu will be happy, and then this will be fixed. So it's a totally different, it takes it at a different set of connections, gets into, like Hanuman doesn't feature at all in classical Ayurvedic texts, but he comes in in these mantras. Uh, and there is a logic to it. It is because he's the son of Vayu. So the, there were these host of different ways in which the body was being imagined. Uh, there was no single imagination, and it was certainly not a very mechanistic imagination. So who exactly was using the pulse as a diagnostic tool? Was it all Ayurvedic practitioners? So the therapeutic aspect and the diagnostic aspect are obviously quite different. And in fact, there, there were a whole bunch of physicians who didn't at all who were who were merely therapeutic technicians who had treatments that that could be treatments that involved massage or bone setting that could be treatments that involved simple recipes uh, who didn't diagnose at all the whose diagnostic skills were very limited the kind of physician who diagnosed using be it the pulse or something else were actually a very uh, small uh, group and they were usually a fairly elite group and again within that I should say pulse taking in all the South Asian traditions be they Ayurveda or Yunani or Siddha there's a whole spectrum with one end of it almost becoming quite uh, almost fading into the realm of mystic powers so you get particularly amongst uh, Yunani Hakims you get a lot of these stories Yunani medicine is the Greco-Arabic medical tradition, sometimes called Islamic medicine because of its long history in the Middle East. Hakims are its practitioners. 
just as Vedyas are the practitioners of Ayurveda. People weren't allowed to touch the hand of a woman and tied a silk thread and was able to just hold the thread and tell the pulse accurately, never having touched the patient or seen her. So there it almost gets into the realm of mystic powers. And there's a, so, so pulse has this dual quality. It is a therapeutic technique, but it's also reserved for very seemingly elite, powerful, special physicians who almost are seen seem to have a kind of divine erudition. Apparently, a lot of this plurality or multiplicity has to do with the ways of understanding and visualizing the body in Ayurveda. So the Ayurvedic body, one of the things I should preface everything I say with is that uh, amongst all the older medical traditions of the world, uh, the really well-known ones, that are textualized from uh, the Chinese um, medical tradition or the Arab Islamic medical tradition. Ayurveda, it's conspicuous in not having a cognate uh, tradition of visualizing the body. In the Arab world, you get anatomical diagrams, you get manuscripts with anatomical images. There's a very specific way in which the body is shown, like a guy sort of with his knees bent. Most of the depictions of the body in medieval Arabic medical writings were geometric shapes used to represent the skull and the structures inside it, especially the brain and the optical system. Projit is here referring to the full body illustrations that usually accompanied the 14th century Persian anatomical textbook, the Sri Hermansuri. While they were not common to the entire Islamic world, they became influential in South Asia. You can find an image of this striking figure and a link to further reading on our website. You have a tradition similarly in uh, Chinese medicine of depicting the body. One of the big struggles in Ayurveda has been, for some reason, they never illustrated bodies. And this is, I think, it's not just an accident, because we do know there's a lot of Indic art. We do know that a whole bunch of other Sanskrit knowledges were illustrated. So why wasn't medicine, which we associate so much with visualization, with illustrations, why didn't it generate an illustrative tradition? The oldest known image of the body within an Ayurvedic, purely Ayurvedic context that has been identified by classicists is, um, it's an image that's on the cover of Dominic Weastic's book, Roots of Ayurveda. It's in the Welcome Collection. But that's from the 18th century, and that's already post-severe European contact. Uh, it's not just early contact. It's like long, sustained contact. You can see an imprint clearly of European body imaginaries on it. Dominic Weastic has shown that this image is influenced by Tibetan drawings of moxibustion points. But if you look at the anatomical image from the Tashrihu Mansuri, you may see some resemblance between it and this Ayurvedic image too. Why is there not a visual tradition in Ayurveda? And I think it is because of the way Ayurvedic knowledge works. Val Daniels, who worked on Siddha medicine, had called consubjective, which is like neither subjective nor objective, something in the middle, where uh, if you're the physician, you perceive the patient's body, but your subjectivity and the patient's subjectivity kind of melds. 
for you to be able to illustrate something, there's a certain amount of distance you need from it. The painter can't be part of the painting himself or herself. I mean, they can imagine and put themselves in, but they have to visualize the image as being outside of them. And I think Ayurveda didn't do that. Also, Sanskrit names were often non-referential. The fact that you get several synonyms in Sanskrit for everything, uh, and it doesn't lend itself to drawing something, putting an arrow and labeling it. We don't have a clear image of the body, but obviously physicians must have been imagining some kind of image of a body to treat it. So it becomes a little more difficult than, say, in the Islamic or the Chinese tradition to talk about the image of the body because you have to basically read between the lines. And reading between the lines is what Project did in his book, Doctoring Traditions. Before we turn back to the pulse in Ayurvedic medicine and discuss how it changed with the advent of wristwatches, let's check in with Melanie again. My name is Melanie Baskind, and I'm a fourth-year medical student. In our last episode, Melanie told us about the way pulse is taught in biomedical schools today, which is largely quantitative, counting beats per minute. And though she learned some qualitative pulse descriptions, most medical students don't know how to recognize them by touch anymore. A shift from symptom to sign. My colleague uh, Robbie Aronowitz has done some work on how the idea of the symptom changes by the end of the 19th century, splitting up into, on the one hand, symptom, and on the other hand, a sign that is increasingly quantifiable. Uh, the symptom is something which is perceived, that is uh, felt, but um, the sign is something that is quantifiable, measurable, and that starts emerging. And so uh, watches fit into that as well, that it produces a kind of data that is no longer just the physician's perception. It's a, uh, it's a data that is, uh, that is independent of, of that kind of perception that can be seen to be independent of the physician's subjectivity as well. Melanie also told me the story about her own wristwatch. So I started medical school, really, I guess I should say I started my third year of medical school, which is your clinical year, and you're very nervous because it's the first time you're going to be spending a lot of time in the hospital, and you try to do as much prep ahead of time, so studying various things that you think are you know, weak points or things that you're going to anticipate you should learn about, and part of my preparation was getting a watch to put on my wrist. I felt like that was something that I was going to need, um, and certainly something that I, I didn't have and wasn't using in the first years of medical school. So I remember I was all outfitted for my first day, and it was maybe like two weeks into my first month of medical school, or my third year, rather. Um, I forgot in the scrubs, um, like the pocket of my scrubs, mm -hmm. and I realized that I actually didn't really need it at all, mm -hmm. with the exception of taking the pulse. There were many times throughout the year where I was sent by an attending back into a room to go get a pulse, and I realized when I had my, my, my fingers on someone's pulse, that I didn't have any way of keeping time. Uh -huh. That was the only time for the rest of the third year of medical school that I missed having the watch. It seems wristwatches are being left behind with the increasing reliance of physicians on digital diagnostic tools. But when did wristwatches even become a standard tool in the doctor's toolkit? Of course, using clocks uh, medicinally or in the context of medicine means a kind of perception of various kinds of bodily times including to the point where we've now got where we're talking of biological clocks inside, which are not real clocks anymore, but the body itself has become clocks. So various kinds of bodily time and temporality. But 
in the European tradition, the it's mainly Hermann Boerhaave in the 18th century who's who promotes the use of watches. However, these watches, how accurate they are, what they do is incredibly difficult to ascertain at this point. Mechanical watches were, for several centuries after their invention, a luxury. Over the course of the 19th century, several people started mass-producing wristwatches. But many people point to World War I as the turning point, when the perception of wristwatches in the West changed from elite women's bracelet watches to a useful tool. How did this history play out in South Asia? Projit has worked on the history of mechanical clocks in India, especially in Bengal, to try to get at this question. The 1750s or so, when the British finally took over, so Bengal was the first bit of land they took over uh, gradually. It became the base of their expansion in Asia. As a result, a lot of local people also made money uh, collaborating with them. And it's these people whose descendants, three generations on, uh, had become rajas and maharajas in uh, Calcutta, lived lavishly in these wonderful uh, palaces, and they also consumed a lot of finely crafted European things. Everything from fine glass decanters and uh, table china to uh, sort of Venetian glass mirrors to uh, all kinds of clocks. I mean, I remember one wonderful clock, for instance, in one of these grand old homes, which was a kaku clock, but it had been specifically made for this Raja. So instead of a kaku, you had a Durga Puja procession come out every time the clock chimed the hour. So <laughs> with it, totally with uh, drummers beating drums and everything. It was grand, really. The history of watches and medicine really takes off from the 19th century onward, which we'll hear about in just a few minutes. But first, these stories about the 18th century are just too interesting to leave out. So there are, for instance, uh, reports that many of the small Nayaka kingdoms in southern India already wanted clocks and watches as one of the early trading items. In the 18th century, there are a bunch of European clockmakers who go to Calcutta where they set up shops and apprentice people. I don't know if there were Indian clockmakers in the 18th century, but there's every likelihood that there were clockmakers. For instance, there's a very famous man in the 18th century called Claude Martin, or Martin, who's a Frenchman and becomes eventually the East India Company's resident to the Nawabs of Avad. Claude Martin is one of these Europeans who go native in the Avad court. So he has three Indian wives, a whole host of mixed-race children, and he makes clocks. Or, for instance, David Hare, who is very famous in Bengal as uh, the man who introduces Western education to a generation of Bengali youth who then come to be known as the young Bengal and initiate all the kind of reforms that are seen to be the making of modern India. David Hare actually was a, I think he was a Scotsman, but he, he made his money as a clockmaker in uh, Calcutta. So the, all these characters in the 18th and 19th centuries, they're certainly people who had very intimate contact with Indians and it's most likely that they trained other Indians as well. One interesting anecdote again is uh, there's a guy who's hanged in the year 1800 for having stolen a watch from some European 
household and it seems like he's a watchmaker himself who stole the watch to learn to build a watch but he was hanged for his effort but that history is so little known and there are so few sources and there's so little work on it still that we don't know much of it okay now back to the 19th century by the second quarter of the 19th century european doctors in india are certainly using watches to tell the pulse this is also a time when an increasing number of indians are getting introduced into western medicine now indians since the 1600s have been getting into western medicine uh, there's uh, there's actually the earliest reports are actually from the surat factory by the early 19th century it's much more formalized there's on the one hand the native medical institution where they're being trained but there are also lots of people being apprenticed to army surgeons uh, what kind of medicine they're learning is kind of up in the air a bit because even the european doctors who went out to india were not always trained in a full course they were often apprenticed for varying degrees of length with others sometimes just hacks on the ship who learnt because the surgeon died and they took over charge or whatever it's murky but we know that by 1830s 40s european doctors in india were extensively using it and there is no reason to believe that indians weren't at that time uh, but the records aren't there records are there from around the 1860s particularly again in bengal there's a huge explosion of printing which is one of the first places where printing really takes off so it's not just a lot of texts but texts from varying stratas of society different price ranges reflecting different sections of society so it's there that we get a large enough archive which is not the state's archive and where we can start seeing what the ayurvedic doctors are doing and it's there that we see that the clock is increasingly being incorporated or the pocket watch rather is being increasingly incorporated into ayurvedic textbooks like a quantifiable pulse a pulse that is to be counted rather than qualitatively judged uh, is being discussed in his book project goes into some fascinating detail about how the quantitative pulse that was incorporated by vedyas in the 19th and 20th centuries was not always based on western time telling devices or practices at the end of episode 1 Avner Vishnitzer explains his concept of temporal cultures to describe the changing notions of time in the modernizing Ottoman Empire. In 19th and 20th century Bengal, physicians would have had access to several kinds of timekeeping devices and temporal cultures, including utterance-based methods and water clocks, commonly available in rural areas. 60 pulses or poles as it's said in Bengal were equal to one ghari roughly 24 of today's minutes. Several Ayurvedic texts written in the 19th century described the quantitative pulse according to this temporal culture, a system of timekeeping which was developed according to Indic astrology. These texts also do something that was never done before in Ayurveda, something new to western medicine as well. They decided on a normal or optimal pulse rate for people based on age, gender, and even region of origin. what was fluid and individual became numerically fixed in both medical traditions physicians determined how different categories of humans had intrinsically different bodies an idea that is now repeated and contested in many sciences like genetics but i want to end the episode with something that doesn't fit exactly with what projit said earlier in the podcast about contemporary ayurvedic practitioners 
He said that they are so influenced by biomedicine that they mostly think of the pulse quantitatively. However, for some, pulse diagnosis falls closer to the mystical end of the spectrum of pulse taking. Modernity, in contrast to erasing these forms, has given them new language. Here's a clip from the Yoga Healer podcast in which Kate Stillman interviews practitioner Mary Jo Kervata about Nadi Pariksha. These koshas, or layers of the etheric body, are based on the five elements. And the earth element relates to the physical body, which is anna maya kosha. Anna means food. So it's the food body. It's the body body. It's the physical body. So most of all medical diagnostics, except for maybe psychiatry, is based on anna maya kosha, on the body body. Now, by the time something shows up in the body, the physical body, there's been a lot happening on those other four layers of our etheric body for a long time, months, years, decades, lifetimes. So the main difference with pulse is that the second layer of the etheric body, prana myokosha, P-R-A, right, prana, life force, Pranamaya kosha. It's our energy body, our energy body. And this is where we have nadis. It's where the chakras originate out of, where marma points originate out of. In Chinese medicine, it would be like meridians. So pranamaya kosha, the energy body, this is what we are tapping into when we feel Ayurvedic pulse. It's we are tapping into the underlying energetic body of the person, the blueprint, for, for lack of a better way of saying it, it, it. So this is why feeling pulse is so highly effective. So when I feel someone's pulse, and it's a blessing for my guru, Kriya Babaji, to be able to do distance pulse. And the reason I can do distance pulse is because it is in pranamaya kosha. It is in the energy body. So there's no time, space, distance uh, when we're talking about pranamaya kosha. So, so when I feel someone's pulse, they cannot hide. The pulse does not lie. The person may not even know something that's going on inside of them, but the pulse will reflect it. Listeners, thank you for joining us for this episode of Ventricles about the evolution of Nadi Pariksha, or post-diagnosis in Ayurvedic medicine. If you are interested in learning more about any of the topics we discussed, please check out the bibliography for this episode, online at the Science, Religion, and Culture Program website, src.hds.harvard.edu. Tune in to the rest of our series about time. A special thank you for this music to the Overseas Ensemble, a collaboration between composer Paid Kanka and Sarigama, a group of Sri Lankan migrant workers in Beirut. <laughs>